Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Father, we gather here week after week for the purpose of worshiping you, for the joy and the privilege and the responsibility of, of giving to you praise and honor and glory and thanksgiving, for the life that it breathes into us to breathe out words of adoration and gratitude. We come, Lord God, to hear your word read, to read your word together, and to hear your word preached, and to respond, Father, by giving to you that which you have blessed us with materially. And so, Lord God, as we now continue in our worship, as we hear the word preached and respond to it in our heart and in our mind and and even with our bodies, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Without his help, Lord God, this is a fruitless endeavor. We desire more than just to accumulate knowledge, Lord God. We want change. We want to know the, the glory of your salvation, of the redemption that is available to those who have placed their trust in Christ. We need not, Father, be improved as human beings. We need to be saved. We need to be redeemed. We need, O oh Lord God, to know the power of forgiveness that we might extend that forgiveness and that grace to others. We confess, O oh Lord God, our great need of you. We confess as well, Lord God, our incomplete knowledge of your word. And that that incompleteness ought not to discourage us, but to ought to whet our appetite even more to know what your word says and how we can see you and experience you through reading and studying and knowing and applying your word. We thank you for the truth of it, for the solidity of it, for the uncompromising way in which it presents to us a God of glory, a God of hope, a God of might a God of love, a God of wrath, a God of justice, a God of mercy, a God of great loving kindness. Father, we love your word because it does help us see more clearly who you are and even more clearly who we are without you and what we can become because of trust and faith in the faithfulness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, it is with these things in mind that we come now with hearts opened and minds opened by your Spirit to hear, to receive, to re respond, to apply, to bring you glory in all that we do, say, and think. We do this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. When I was a young pastor in North Dakota and at times would uh, uh, struggle to find uh, words to uh, say something about a particular scripture, my, my mentor uh, friend, Dean Williams, would always encourage me to see what others had written about the same topic. Uh, his counsel was always, if it's in the Bible, somebody has preached on it, and sometimes better than you will ever do. So that's the case this morning. I want to begin with a disclaimer. Some of the material that I'm going to share with you, I have adapted from material uh, borrowed from John Piper. That's in the interest of avoiding any kind of plagiarism. I have added my own material as well, but you need to know that going into this as we learn about the importance of the word preached in the midst of our worship gathering. When, uh, when I served as the pastor of a congregational church in Canada, we had a printed order of service. 
and uh, it would be laid out for everyone there, and our children would, when, as they were learning to read, would follow the order of service, and, and our son in particular would, would follow this service with pen in hand, and he would check off, call to worship, invocation, first hymn, second hymn, responsive reading, third hymn, announcements, and then he would look, sermon. <sighs> Like we were just we were just speeding along, and then suddenly traffic on the GW bridge. I hope that's not your response when you come to this part of our worship gathering, where we have enjoyed uh, singing wonderful songs of praise and adoration, of hearing the word read to us, and responding in prayer and confession, seeing the wonderful ministry that we have for our children. But in our series on worship, as we have been gathering for the last several weeks, we, we asked a question today, which is, why do we place so much importance on preaching the Bible in our corporate worship gatherings? Why do we devote almost half our time, maybe a little more if the preacher is a bit long-winded, to the delivery of a message that is focused on the Word of God? Why do we devote so much time to teaching and preaching the Bible? There are three basic answers to those questions. The first is that we teach and we preach the Bible to help everyone here know how to read, how to understand, and how to apply and interpret God's Word as accurately as is humanly possible with the help of the Holy Spirit. Our goal is to help you read, know, understand, and apply as accurately as is humanly possible, what God says in His Word with the help of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, we, by we I mean the, the pastors here, we are committed to providing every member here sound and trustworthy biblical preaching so that with the help of the Spirit, you will know what sound, trustworthy, and good preaching sounds like and is like. That with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will be able to discern what good preaching is. And then third, that by learning what sound, trustworthy, biblical preaching sounds like and is like, you will be able in the future to call a, a preacher, pastor, who will lead Maranatha into the future that God has been preparing for all of you. We place so much importance on the preaching of God's Word here at Maranatha because preaching, well, to be honest, preaching can have a life-altering, heart-changing, destiny-determining impact on your life, on the life of your family, and indeed on the future of Maranatha as a whole. So let's return to the question that's before us. Why do we place so much importance on the preaching of God's Word during our corporate worship gathering? But to answer that question, we have to answer two other questions, which will become the, the, the body of the message from here on. The first question is, why is the Word of God so important to us? And then secondly, why is preaching, and in particular, expository preaching, why is expository preaching the preferred mode of communicating God's Word to God's people? When you think about it, I mean, why... Why do we do this? Why, why not just have myself or one of the other pastors lead us in a 35-minute discussion of a particular text of the Bible? 
Or why not devote our time together to some kind of academic analysis using vocabulary and grammar and historical review of the particular scripture that we're studying? Why, if you will, choose this rather inefficient means of communicating God's word? You will leave here, unless you go back and read the recording of this message, you will leave here remembering less than 20% of what I say. So why do we do that? Why do we engage in this practice? Why is the Word of God so important, and why is the expository preaching of God's Word so important? And the answer to that first question is the Word of God is important because God revealed Himself as the Word and by the Word. You know that the, the Gospel of John begins with these words that really are borrowed, in essence, from the Old Testament book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. The Gospel of John begins with these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. John tells us in the beginning was the Word, not the hymn, not the song, not the psalm, but the Word. The Word is existing from eternity. And it is that Word that God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. We know from reading the Gospel and from reading the Bible that that Word took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, that Jesus is Himself the physical embodiment, the physical communication of God's Word to us. So God, the Word of God is important to us because God has embodied Himself in human form, taking human flesh to communicate to us in a rather personal and intimate and real way. And God does amazing work as well through His Word. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul, in, in encouraging Timothy with respect to the Scripture, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's a favorite Greek word for those Greek nerds out there, theopneustos, God breathed, that is inspired by God, is breathed out by Him. And then in 2 Peter 1.23, carrying on this theme of the inspiration of Scripture that comes from God Himself, not through the invention of man, Peter says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the importance of God's Word is the fact that it's a divine Word. It comes not from a group of men in a room somewhere designing a way and a method of enslaving others, especially women, to bend their will to theirs. No, it comes from God Himself as a liberating Word. A word that comes to captivate our soul that we might, by being captivated by that word, find our true, not only our true liberty, but our true humanity and our true identity by identifying ourselves and being identified with that word which took our form and became like us in every way, as, as Pastor Eric read to us at, from our call to worship in Hebrews 4. Go and read Hebrews 4, 4, 15 through 16. Actually, go back to verse 14 and read about how Jesus, our great high priest, is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, yet without sin. 
Tempted in every way as are we, it says, yet without sin. Why is the word of God important? Because the word of God came to us in human flesh to bear the very temptations that we bear yet without sin. So that when we go to him with the things that we struggle with, the temptations that we are beset by, we have a Savior who understands the stress, the pain, the mental anguish, and the physical toll those temptations and the yielding of our heart to them can have. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. But he does more than that. It is because he is without sin and died as a sinless Savior. He has opened the way for us to enter into the very throne room of God. Not with any kind of fear or trepidation of being cast out by God. But with confidence, says the writer of the Hebrews, with confidence we draw near that we might find not judgment, but mercy. We would receive not condemnation, but grace whenever we need it. That mercy and grace which sustains us. Why is the word of God important? Because it is a word of mercy, it is a word of grace that informs us that the judgment that we fear has fallen upon the one who has taken our flesh and borne our sin, that we might, through trust and faith in him, follow him, worship him, learn how to love him as well as love our neighbor. God has committed himself to speaking to us and to revealing himself to us through words inspired by his Holy Spirit, given to men to record. So that all Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is the God-breathed-out revelation of his character and his plan for all creation. The Word of God is important because God revealed himself through the Word and by the Word. Now, at this point, someone might ask, okay, fine, good point. But what does this have to do with worship? Worship is our response to God having revealed himself through his word and by his word. Worship is our response to the work that God has done through the power of his word. What I, what I delivered to you in the first part of this message was simply was news, was simply information about what God has done. That information is shared not so that you will just simply intellectually digest it and think, well, those are good points. I'll write those on my 3x5 card, put it on my refrigerator door, and I'll look at them every morning. More than that, it's to respond to it. It's to act upon it. It's to digest it the way that you would eat your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner, or your Snickers bar in the middle of the day. Something that you do by way of enacting upon the knowledge that you have now received. To understand that worship is responding to what God has done through his word and by his word. He has created all things by and through his word. Hebrews 11.3 tells us that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen is made out of things is not made out of things that are visible, says the writer. And this verse, that verse 11.3 of Hebrews, looks back to Genesis 1. 
go through and read Genesis 1 after every act, before every act of creation in Genesis 1, there are three simple words, profound words, powerful words, creative words. And God said, the earth was formless and void. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Moses records those words. He records creation by an act of speaking in order to differentiate the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from all other gods. All other religions have some kind of creation story that is born out of a conflict between some cosmic power and some other cosmic power. And so out of this conflict, creation comes. And all other religions, particularly pagan religions, have a God for the sun, a God for the earth, a God for the sea, a God for the wind, a God for the mountains. Moses is telling us in Genesis, we have one God. And this God is so powerful, he just speaks and things come into being. He creates out of nothing everything that is. That's the God we worship. That's the God we respond to who does amazing things through his word and by his word. When the Apostle Paul is speaking about Jesus in Colossians 1.16, he says of Jesus, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So it's not just the sun, the earth, the moon, the, the, the physical creation, but every form of legal and governmental authority is created by the one who is the word in flesh. It's good to be reminded of that. We worry about how things are going governmentally, as if some, they are acting independently. No, they are in accordance with the created will of God. And so we respond to God in worship. Creation itself, we're told in Psalm 19, declares the very glory of God, the heavens preaching his word day and night. Paul picks this up in Romans 1 where he talks about the, the very presence of God, the very reality of God is evident by the things that he has created, and it is our blindness as sinners that it makes us ignorant of the fact that God has made all of these things, that even when we are aware of him, and when we know him, we suppress the truth about him. But the word, the word of God, revealed to us in Christ, revealed to us through what is written in the scriptures, the word is designed to tear our heart apart, open our eyes to the reality that God has created everything that is, including us. And that as Augustine said, you have created us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O God. Are you restless this morning? Are you in turmoil this morning? Or as we sang, are you wrestling with doubt and unbelief? The solution, the answer, the tranquilizer for those things is faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who will help us find mercy and receive grace in time of need. God performs great acts by his word. Jesus performs great acts by his word. We read in Mark 4.39 that when the disciples 
feared that they would drown in the midst of a, a storm on the Sea of Galilee. We read there that Jesus, after they woke him up, he rebuked the wind and he spoke to the sea, Peace! Be still! And the wind ceased and the sea was calm as glass. And then in Luke 4.39, Jesus is taken to the home of, of Simon Peter and they discover Simon Peter's mother-in-law suffering from a fever. And Jesus speaks to the woman, speaks to her fever, and the fever goes, departs, and she rises, and she serves them a meal. Jesus does amazing things by his word. You read the Gospels, and you will see that Jesus used his word to cast out demons, to forgive sins, to give sight to the blind, to give hearing to the deaf, and speech to the mute. And on at least two occasions, Jesus used his word to raise people from the dead. You read there in in John 11:43, when Jesus stands before the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he doesn't go into an elaborate ritual, doesn't do an elaborate ceremony. He just simply stands in front of the tomb once the stone has been rolled away, and he simply speaks. I don't necessarily think Jesus shouted. I think he just spoke to him like a friend. Lazarus, come forth. And that's what he says to us in the midst of our spiritual death. John, come forth. Jose, come forth. Steve, come forth. Sana, come forth. The word invites us. God invites us by his word to experience a fresh and new life, a relationship with him that is life-giving, that is destiny-determining, that is heart-changing. Why do we focus so much attention on the word preached? Because the word is life. And worship is our response to the work that God does through his word. But the Word of God does more than just create the universe, more than sustain these things. We're told in Hebrews 11, uh, chapter 1 that Christ creates all things and all things hold together by the Word of His power. The Word of God also continues to help us grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To borrow again from Paul's words to, to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, he says, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The, why? So that the man of God, the woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. God uses his word, and we, we resort to his word to teach, to rebuke, or to help one another improve as well as to be trained for righteousness, to know what right living looks like. We can, we can spend an entire sermon on every one of those parts of what Paul says there. But for now, for the sake of time, let's just remember these two things. That God uses his word to help his people do good works in his name. Certainly that was the point that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he talks about letting our good works be seen, letting our light shine so people would see our good works and then give glory to our Father in heaven. 
So God uses his word to help his people do good works in his name. And God also uses his word to shape our character and mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. Pastor Eric read to us from Romans 8.32. You read that in context and you see there that part of what Paul is getting at in Romans 8 is that as we as we grow in Christ, as we realize who we are in Christ, God is molding and conforming and shaping us into the image of his son. That's why life can be very painful when you go through seasons of trial and testing because we are like clay and we are resistant to the hands of God molding us into the image of Christ. We don't want to be. It's like when you go to the chiropractor or the physical therapist and they're working with muscles that you don't even know are there. And you walk out going, I felt better before I went in. But over time, when you work those muscles, when you understand how they work and the idea of keeping them flexible, you begin to improve your health. It's the same with God. He works those muscles like a, like a chiropractor, like a physical therapist, training us, rebuking us, correcting us, molding us, shaping us into the image and character of Christ. That in and of itself is worthy of contemplation, deep and long. It's worthy of worship. Why would God spend so much time with pieces of dust if not for the fact that his son has redeemed us and he has placed his spirit within us that we might, by being shaped and conformed into the image of Christ, Reflect that character. That's the whole purpose of our VBS, to shine out with the very light that Christ has placed within us because of his word and by his word. The word is responsible for our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.23 says, We have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, <clears throat> through the living an abiding word of God. So our spiritual rebirth, we are born again through the work of the Holy Spirit who opens our heart to understand the word of God, to understand what the gospel means when we under, learn that we are sinners separated by God from our sin. We understand the plain teaching of Romans 10.17 where the Apostle Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's interesting, in, in the uh, short time I've been doing rounds at the hospital, I've, uh, I've met uh, a wide variety of people. Some from uh, Catholic backgrounds, some from Christian backgrounds, some from no religious background whatsoever. One thing is clear, regardless of their background, not only do they want to get home, but they had a lot of time to think about life. They've had a lot of time to think about where they're going, particularly the, the cardiac patients who are facing valve replacements or are in need of heart transplants. They begin to estimate and calculate the time that they spent away from their families even away from God. And it's a, it's a privilege to be able to remind them and to share with them that there's a hope for life beyond this life. That's why we preach the word. That's why we focus on that, to remind ourselves, myself included, 
that this world is not all there is. That there is a reality that has invaded this life. A truth that will endure when everything else is consumed. I look at and I listen to men who have built successful careers. And I keep thinking to myself, as a word against my own heart, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But make sure you build up treasures in heaven. So I leave those conversations and I stand before you now always with the question, where is my heart? Upon whom and upon what is my heart set? That's why we preach the word. To exhort, to encourage, to remind. I know you have bills to pay. I know there are stresses that we all face. There are children to raise. There are things to consider. There are conflicts that we must endure. And those things are part of life. As a friend of mine in Ohio used to say, no one gets out of this life without singing the blues. So when you sing the blues, it's good to know that there's one who has sung the blues before you and can give you a better song to sing by trusting in him. The goal of preaching, and in particular expository preaching, is to remind, to renew, and to reawaken our faith Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I once read a, a, a story, an illustration. This fellow had written a letter to the editor saying, you know, I don't know why preachers spend so much time preaching. I can hardly remember a single word from a single sermon I've heard in the X amount of years I've been to church. I don't see the point of it. And then someone responded to that letter and said, you know, I can't remember how many meals my wife has prepared for me. I can't remember a single one. I can't remember any dish that she has prepared. But you know, if I didn't eat those dinners, I would have starved to death. Sermons are like that. The aim is to renew, to reawaken, and to remind us of our faith over and over again. Our goal is not to sort of nurture this nostalgic longing for what used to be. It's not the goal of preaching. My friend Bruce Edward had a great term. The goal of preaching is to make us nostalgic for the future. The goal of preaching is to instill in us a longing for a day to come of, in which we will all participate by faith in the glory of Christ revealed. Until such time, we need to have our faith strengthened, nurtured, sustained. It needs to be constantly and daily cultivated. We do that not only through our own study of God's Word, but by gathering Sunday after Sunday to hear a message grounded in God's Word so that we would trust God in the present based on what God has done in the past so that we will depend on Him for the future. If you are a student of church history, you will know this, that prior to the Reformation, before the Reformation, the pulpit was off to the side and the central thing in any cathedral was always the altar. It's massive. 
because that's where the mass was celebrated. That's where the, the weekly sacrifice of the body of Christ was celebrated. It, became, it was the central thing in the church service. After the, resurrect, after the Reformation, in Protestant terms, the pulpit was moved from the side, front and center. Why? Because the Word becomes the thing. We know Christ has died for us. We are now about proclaiming what that means for us and what that means for the world. We place the preaching of the Scripture front and center because it is by the Word and through the Word that we hear and understand what God has done, is doing, and will continue to do on into eternity for His people, for His glory, and the glory of Jesus Christ and God the Holy Spirit. With The Word of God gives oxygen to our worship. There's no Word. There's no life. There's no life. There's no faith. There's no faith, there's no work. There's no work. There's no worship. There's no revelation. Why is the Word of God so important? It's important because God revealed Himself as the Word and by the Word. Which leads us then to the second question. Why is the expository preaching the preferred mode of communicating God's Word in corporate worship? Before we can answer that question, we have to understand what we mean by expository preaching. My preaching mentor, Haddon Robinson, wrote a book called Biblical Preaching. And in it, he defines expository preaching as follows. Expository preaching is a communication of a biblical concept derived and transmitted through a historical, grammatical, and literary study of a passage in its context which the Holy Spirit applies to the personality and experience of the preacher, then through the preacher applies to the hearers. So before this word is ever spoken to you, it's spoken to me. And I am sharing with you what I have garnered, what I have learned through the study and application of this word. I'm not perfect at it, neither are you. But there's grace and mercy to allow for that. And there are several examples of expository preaching in, in both the Old and the New Testament. One of the best examples is in Nehemiah 8, 6 through 8. Nehemiah is, is helping renew and restore uh, the, uh, the sense of who God is to the people after the, the wall of Jerusalem has been broken down. And he is helped by Ezra, who had made and devoted his life to the study of God's Word. In Nehemiah 8, we're told that Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shevathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, and Pelaliah, the Levites, helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So here you have these men appointed from the priestly tribe who helped the people to understand the law, understand the word, and give sense of what the law was saying to the people. That's the purpose of expository preaching. And all this is done in the context of a corporate worship gathering. And the people worshiped God in response to the word. They bowed their heads. They lifted their hands. 
and some fell with their faces to the ground. In the New Testament, the same pattern of worship continues in the synagogue, in the Jewish synagogue. In Luke 4, Jesus enters Nazareth, goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He is invited to speak, and he's handed the role of Isaiah, and he reads from Isaiah 61. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. So both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have this pattern. The word of God is read, an exposition of the word is given, and then an application. It continues in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, Paul enters the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And we're told that after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue they sent a message to Paul saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and preached. This past Friday, I was, I was, I was coming from one uh, end of the hospital to the other, and there was a, an elderly couple walking down the hall uh, over to the building where I was going, and the wife had an IV and a shawl around her, and her husband was walking, and we engaged in conversation and I walked them to their room, and I, I let the husband get the wife settled in bed, and I visited another patient. When I went back to the room, the, 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 the wife was talking to her roommate, her bedmate. And as I walked in the room, they said, well, look who's here, just the man we want to talk to. So we've been talking about God, and you show up. And I, I said, yes, well, here I am. I'm the chaplain. And so the first thing she said was, so, chaplain, what's the word? What's the word from God? And I read to them Psalm 23. And there wasn't a dry eye in the room. That's the privilege we have of preaching. To simply say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overflows. I love that image. Who does that? Who, who in the face of an advancing army says, I got it covered. Eat. Eat. You need your strength. I'll take care of the enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My enemies may overwhelm me. My enemies may overtake me. My enemies may even kill me. But they can't separate me from the fact that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That was the word. And there wasn't a dry eye in the room, including mine. What a privilege. What an honor to be able to do that. That's the work of the Spirit. That's what happens when the word is heard. That's what happens when the word is preached. There's an encounter that takes place. One reason why 
expository preaching has such a priority in our corporate worship gathering is that very thing, that someone will be here and needs to hear. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've come in today feeling condemned. You may have come in today feeling that I am worthless. How could I serve God? The enemy is besetting you with all sorts of manner of accusation. And you hear the preacher say, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has borne that condemnation. He has borne that penalty. And now what we have is grace. What we have is mercy. To say rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your forbearing, let your gentle spirit be known to all. Don't be anxious about anything, but let your requests be made known to God that with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, you make your request known to God. So in the place of all that anxiety comes the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding. You need to hear that. I need to hear that. We need to be reminded of it. How does that happen on Sunday? It happens through preaching. There are two other reasons why it's important to have expository preaching. It helps us to understand the Word of God, and it helps us to delight in God. Because understanding the character, understanding who God is, leads to delighting in Him. I look at it this way. I am not a musician. I don't know music theory. I don't know music history. But a, a person who does... A person who has studied music theory, a person who has studied music history, can listen to Mozart's Don Giovanni, or Beethoven's Fifth and Ninth Symphonies, or Bach's St. Matthew's Passion, can listen to the oratorio, can listen to the notes, and is just moved by that. You show those compositions to me, and all I will see are a bunch of squiggly lines, dots, and dashes. I enjoy the music, but my appreciation of the music only goes so far as my ability to hear it. But someone who has studied theory is in awe of the talent. In the same way, someone who has studied God and studied God through his word looks at Psalm 139 and says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made and you realize the delicate balance between life and health and the creation of life in the womb, the delicate balance that exists in nature, the, the beauty and the glory, and only someone who has spent time being inspired to read God's word from a message delivered from the pulpit can understand what it is to delight in him. The goal of expository preaching is to whet that appetite. It's to create the desire to understand God so as to delight in Him. Or to, to paraphrase John Piper, the goal of expository preaching is to help us understand that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Our worship involves seeing God and experiencing God. We gaze upon Him according to Psalm 27.4, we, we spend time looking at his word and looking at his creation and then just sort of spending time just gathering our thoughts in terms of the magnificence of who God is 
And then we delight in him the way it says in Psalm 37, 4. To delight in him is to enjoy knowing him, to enjoy loving him, to enjoy opening our heart to him. To delight in God is, is, is learning how to direct our attention away from our self-centered preoccupation with our own comfort and prosperity with just God's perfection, his will, his mercy, and his grace. The path to self-fulfillment does not lie in getting the good job, getting into the best school, having the best children, or having the nicest home, or the nicest car, or the nicest clothes. A path to self-fulfillment does not lie with any amount of searching within. The path to self-discovery comes through this. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And until and unless God makes us alive through the work of his Holy Spirit, we will never be truly fulfilled. We will never be truly satisfied. That is the purpose of expository preaching, is to point us all to Jesus Christ as a source of our ultimate satisfaction. Any understanding of God that does not produce a delight in him is nothing more than head knowledge. I like doctrine. I love doctrine. I can read doctrine all day long. Doctrine is, to me, a beautiful thing. But doctrine that does not produce a joyous, exuberant, and yes, even an emotional worship, it's, it's, well, it's like having a Tesla with a dead battery. Beautiful to look at, amazing piece of technology. But with a dead battery, it ain't going nowhere. Doctrine without understanding, doctrine without leading to worship is like that. To worship God requires that we continually think about, consider, and meditate on what the Bible says about his character. And to worship God then is all to, to rejoice in him. It's to mourn our sin. That's why we have confession as part of our worship service. It's to fear him with a reverent fear and deep respect. It is also to hope in him. Expository preaching is a preferred mode of communicating God's word because it's the pattern that's established in the Bible because it helps us to understand God and it, it encourages us to delight in him. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word. That word preach means to herald, to announce, or to proclaim. The word itself suggests uh, the old town crier that would walk through the middle of a town or a village. You know, the guy that would, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Right? And so Paul is, is, is likening preachers to heralds saying, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The king hereby announces this good news to all who will show loyalty to his throne. The king will graciously offer everlasting life to all who trust in his son. That is the message of expository preaching. It is the public proclamation of good news. News that demands and requires a response. It is a public declaration of an eternal truth. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And at the same time, this proclamation announces good news. It also instructs. Paul goes on to say in 2 Timothy 4.2 that in addition to preaching, Timothy is to reprove, to rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So it's the accurate 
handling of God's word that is also required of good, sound, biblical preaching. And expository preaching aims to instruct the mind and inspire the heart because it is the oxygen for our worship. I'll end with this. <clears throat> I've, I've had the privilege of preaching uh, expository sermons for the better part of 38 years. Uh, and I, I preach good sermons. I've preached bad sermons. I've preached bad sermons. I've preached mediocre sermons. And on some occasions, by God's grace, I have preached even a great sermon. But the quality of my sermons notwithstanding, the most important lesson I've learned about preaching is that sermons, even at their best, sermons are like graduation commencement speeches. Nobody remembers them. Then again, that is not the point. The goal of expository preaching is not to preach a memorable sermon. For me, or for any preacher to attempt to preach a sermon with the single-minded intent that it be memorable is the height of vanity. It's a fool's errand. Now, the goal of expository preaching, and by extension every sermon, is to make Jesus Christ memorable. So did you walk out of here thinking about him, not me? Did you walk out of here thinking about how do I stand in relationship to him? Where do I stand? How can I be right with him? And if I am right with him, how can I continue to be faithful to him? That's the goal of preaching. That's our aim when we exhort and reprove and teach and encourage from this pulpit. We aim, as Paul says, to know one thing and one thing only and to preach one thing and one thing only, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified, the Savior of the world. That's why we place so much importance on the sermon in this corporate worship gathering, because as a seminary professor of mine used to say, preaching is serious business, and so is following Jesus Christ. We aim to glorify Christ in our preaching, and the aim is not the eloquence of the preacher, but the beauty, the glory, and the majesty of Christ. Good preaching proclaims the good news that God grants everlasting life to all who trust in Jesus, because only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're done. You think about that. Let's pray.